Today's episode of the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants and businesses well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise $250,000, and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. We got lots and lots to talk about today. We'll talk about Donald Trump's weirdest coronavirus press conference yet. We'll talk about how ESPN is weathering the sports content drought from showing classic college football games and Masters tournaments to uh, a spelling bee marathon. Plus, David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I want to start with a curious figure who has emerged during coronavirus TV coverage, the celebrity doctor. We've seen praise heaped on Dr. Anthony Fauci, former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, even Sanjay Gupta. Those are America's Dr. Jekylls. But then there's Mr. Hyde. There's the TV doctor who has dabbled in questionable science, touted wonder drugs, or essentially told America, don't worry everything's going to be okay. We'll get to some famous examples in a second, but my starting theory here is this. Anyone who has watched CNN or ESPN knows how TV punditry works. Whenever anyone is saying one thing, aka the truth, or at least our best version of the truth, there are huge incentives to say the other thing, right? To say, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be gloomy Corona doctor. I'm going to be upbeat Corona doctor. And when you take those incentives and throw in the American cult of celebrity, doesn't that start to explain how we got here? Yeah, this is a problem that has been identified in other circumstances, I guess, uh, over and over again, sort of over the past, I don't know, decade. And and I think when 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 we've tried to diagnose, no pun intended, the problem that we're facing right now, I mean, obviously there's a huge incentive not just to be counterintuitive, but to be, you know, pro-Trump. And and I, you know, mean that in the sort of most generous possible way. I don't know what that would mean, (laughs) but um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know if if that exclusively explains how we got here, but the sort of the sort of general impulse towards uh, denialism certainly explains um, just about all of it. Yeah. I think there's also probably a bandwidth issue here, which is that Anthony Fauci is right now the single most sought after talk show guest in America, mm-hmm. but he can only be on so many shows. And so if you're the CNN booker or the, you know, Fox news booker, you're like, we got to get somebody. 
how about the celebrity doctor yeah. whom people already know and maybe even I, Dr. Drew's case was kind of used to work for us. And can't he come on here and talk about coronavirus? Right. I mean, that's a, it's a bandwidth thing. It's also, as you basically described there, it's a sort of like, you know, it's a booking issue, right? I mean, if something, if, if whatever, if like uh, the long lost recordings of Robert Johnson were found, would you rather have like a music historian or like Bono on to talk about it on your show? You know, I mean, like you, you're going to, you're going to pick the name, you're going to pick the name, right? I mean, that's good. That, if you can't have Anthony Fauci, who's sort of become a celebrity in his own right, you're going to try to find the celebrity. Yeah, I think the answer to who would CNN have on in the, in that case would probably be Toure because I believe yes. he is kind of a go-to <laughs> music music guy there. Uh, doctor number one, David, for our purposes, is Mehmet Oz, almost universally known as Dr. Oz. He is not an epidemiologist, but he's become a go-to guest on Fox News, appearing on shows like Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs, and he's been promoting hydroxychloroquine which is this anti-malarial drug that one French study held out as a possible coronavirus treatment based on a very, very tiny sample. On April 6th, Dr. Oz had talked about hydroxychloroquine on Fox News 21 times, according to The Atlantic's James Hamblin. And David, guess who was watching? Uh, According to CNN's Oliver Darcy and Kevin Liptak, Trump has been intrigued by Oz's appearance on Fox News. A White House official added that Trump has mentioned Dr. Oz's television appearances to aides when discussing the drug, that is, hydroxychloroquine. What did Dr. Oz say on Fox News? Listen to this. Tell us why you're, you're looking at this as a possible treatment that could save lives. You know, I first learned about this study last week. It was relatively recent. Again, one is an anti-malarial drug and the other is ZPAC, the antibiotic that so many of us use. And this French doctor, Dr. Relt, had a very famous infectious disease specialist, had done some interesting work at a pilot study showing that he could get rid of the virus in six days in 100% of the patients he treated, as opposed to maybe 20 days in, in most patients who have COVID-19. That's a big deal. That dramatically shortens the infectivity. But, you know, instead of looking for a needle in the haystack, I became more like the magnet hope pulling in the needles. Before I knew it, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Relt. I was very impressed by him. And I told the vice president today, that what he told me at the end of the interview stunned me. He said that he thought it was unethical to withhold this treatment based on what he knew. Again, this is not a fly-by-night fellow. He's very well-respected. And in France, they're looking at his therapies. They're using him in some hospitals. So as Hamblin notes in the Atlantic article, saying this worked with 100% of patients is a very clumsy way to talk about even this limited study. First of all, it was not a randomized clinical trial. That's important when talking about these kinds of things. Hamblin goes on to say, according to the study itself, three other patients who received hydroxychloroquine were too sick to be tested for the virus by day six. They were intubated in the ICU. Another had a bad reaction to the drug and stopped taking it. And yet another was tested because by day six, he had died. But if you are listening to this Fox News thing and you happen to be the president of the United States, you're hearing, wait a second, 100% of people have been cured of this, of coronavirus. You just see how slippery that gets when you go into the world of TV punditry from actual medicine. Right. I mean, you called it, I mean, and and Hamlin also, I mean, uh, called it clumsy 
to refer to 100 is 100% of the patients showing positive results. I mean, that, that's a very generous way of phrasing it, right? I mean, if you actually take the, the information that you just recited into account, that's like borderline actionable, I mean, right? I mean, that's like that's a that's a really that's a really dangerous thing to go out there and say. Now we can set aside for a moment the fact that like it has been, I guess, now fully established that the most effective way to influence national policy is to go on Fox News, and somehow the filters on Fox News in response have gotten more and more lax. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of even if you just look at the fact that the person whose job it is to be a talking head on Fox News moonlights as an advisor to the president. And this, again, is not news. And, you know, we know about Sean Hannity doing this and everything else. But it's just, it's a, it's not just like a vicious circle. It's like a circular firing squad. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, there's like, there's no good version of how this works out, it seems like. And this is maybe incidental, but this the the, the line where, Dr. Oz says he had an opportunity to speak to the doctor and he found him impressive. I mean, that, first of all, I mean, I guess is the, it could be the, the capsule bio for Dr. Oz himself. I mean, like he like popped on the screen when he was on Oprah. So we think he, we think he's good now, but like mm-hmm. it's, I mean, literally the opposite of science to say something like that, right? <laughs> like scientific inquiry. And it just takes two seconds to read on to find out what happened to everybody else who is involved in the study. And if you're Dr. Oz and you're either you're either not interested enough to read that far or you're deliberately withholding it for the sake of what? Uh, having a rose glasses segment on Fox News? I mean, I, I don't, there's no, again, no version of that that has a positive connotation. Trump's uh, allies on and off TV have embraced the drug. Laura Ingram uh, went to the White House and introduced two doctors who had been guests on her show to Trump. And talked up the potential benefits of hydroxychloroquine, according to the Washington Post. Rudy Giuliani has been promoting it because, of course, he has. Uh, and now, thanks at least in part to Dr. Oz, Trump is all in. Trump said famously the other day, what do you have to lose? What do you have mm-hmm. to lose? Take it, right? Doctor number two, David, Dr. Drew Pinsky, formerly of Loveline and Celebrity Rehab. <laughs> Dr. Drew has made the TV and radio rounds talking about coronavirus. I actually found an old segment the other day he did with Colin Coward on uh, in, the, in the early days of the pandemic here in the United States. Here's a sample of the way Pinsky talked about the virus in various places put together by a Twitter user named Droops Doctor. We predicted from the beginning that this is going to be worse than the flu. Uh, it's way less virulent than the flu, so it's a reminder that you're more likely to die of influenza, so go ahead and get your flu shots. Mild. Doesn't hurt anybody. That should be the headline. Way less serious than influenza. That's the headline. You know what the 2% lethality thing is you have there? Are you talking about the coronavirus thing? It's less than 2%. It's like 0.02%. It is less dangerous than influenza. Less dangerous than influenza. Um, your probability of dying of coronavirus much higher being hit by an asteroid, I would say. The flu virus in this country is vastly more consequential, and nobody is talking about that. Much likelier to be hit by an asteroid than to die of COVID-19. Dr. Drew would later apologize in a Periscope video saying, I wish I had gotten it right, but I got it wrong. A couple of um, notes about that. One is that so much of the celebrity doctor thing turns out to be media bashing, as you heard a little bit there. The headline Mm -hmm. should be this. 
That's what he also said on Coward. It was all about how the media is being so gloomy and negative about this. Mm. And that's always such a, such an interesting strain I'm hearing, uh, no pun intended, of media criticism during coronaviruses. Look, I, I, I like CNN and all this stuff, but I just it's just so negative. I want to be positive. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm choosing to be positive. There's no reason you can't be positive without just giving misleading information or information that turns out to be junk while you're on television. Those are not mutually exclusive things. No. I mean, I was watching his apology, and when he was doing his apology, I, I, Dr. Drew made the case that, or, or you know, one of his arguments was that he had actually been out there saying some of the stuff he'd been saying, i.e. listen to Dr. Fauci, uh, was right. And he said, I've been, you know, I've done nonstop PR for the past two days saying this, right? I've been on TV for hours and hours a day. And I mean, I don't know about you, Brian. I've not done that much radio, but I've done a couple of, uh, a couple of, you know, solid days around WrestleMania season here and there, or like promoting sure. a book that were, and I know you've done the same, right? Where you've just done just, you know, 10 radio hits in a day, maybe a pop-up on TV, something like that. And that, when you do that amount of media, here's a little peek behind the curtain. There is zero opportunity for you to evolve as a thinker, right? All you're doing is saying the exact same talking points over and over again and literally convincing yourself of them as you say them. You know, I mean, you say something on one, you're like, you know what? That sounded good. And then you say it on the next one. Um, the idea that he's doing wall-to-wall media is not a positive thing. He needs to take a breath. He needs to take some time off. That's obviously the problem with this. And to be a counterintuitive, th- I mean, to talk about, do- I mean, talking about doing the sports media rounds, that Dr. Drew saying, talking about the flu and saying like, oh, that, and nobody's talking about that. I mean, he's just doing a hot take, right? I mean, like doing the, like, here, here's the big thing nobody's talking about is that this is just as bad as the flu. I mean, this is what my pothead friends were saying two months ago, right? And, the, <laughs> and, and this is a professional or whatever, um, uh, at least a media professional, a doctor who's out there saying, and listen, I have a lot of, I mean, I think Dr. Drew is a very compelling uh, speaker and and broadcaster and everything. I mean, I, I've I've definitely enjoyed listening to him in the past on podcasts and stuff like that. But like, you know, you have to acknowledge that what he's doing is, if not junk science, it's pop science or whatever. And you get and and if you don't, if he is your only guest on a news program, if you're framing him as like a doctor of significance who like actually knows what he's talking about, you're doing a huge disservice to your audience. So what you bring up there is there is a pop science lane to this that can be a good thing, right? Dr. Drew is not an expert on infectious diseases, but neither is Sanjay Gupta, who is a neurosurgeon by training, right? And if you're a doctor, you can read the information and be just like, I'm going to be the conduit of good information, right? My skill is I'm really good at talking on the radio or talking on television. So I'm going to be available to go around and say, here's the best information we have right now. And, and, you know, this is what you should do. And this is what you do rather than, as you say, evolving into coronavirus pundit, you know, it was like, I'm going to, I got some, I got an edgy take about this. Mm-hmm. And and it was funny as he would kind of give the semi edgy take. And then at the end of the interview, and at least the one I heard would then defer to Dr. Fauci, which is just so funny, you know, like, I was like, well, but, but listen to Dr. Fauci. Well, why are you diverging from this? Right. Why, why even have that take to begin with? It's weird, but I just, you know, cause I, I don't think cable news is going to get rid of the figure of the famous doctor. 
it's just almost that you have to make the famous doctor better, right? You have to make the famous doctor sort of more reliable and say, I'm going to go read the information. I'm going to put this in ways that it's easy for people to understand. I'm going to be a little more colorful than the CDC veteran that might be recruited for this slot. Mm-hmm. And I could actually help people or at least get, you know, gets, get the word out in some kind of digestible way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think the problem is you, I mean, you would hope that at this point in the, in a, in this coronavirus situation, then we would have gotten better at this or the news organizations would already be better at this, but they're just not, their, their focus is not in medical news. Right. So if they have a Rolodex, they call the doctor on the Rolodex and like, you know, when we talk trash about all the networks sort of equally on this show, um, but there are certainly ones that are better than others, right? I mean, I, I don't think anybody would put Sanjay Gupta or whatever in the in the same category as the doctors we've discussed, even though he occupies a similar role on CNN. But, you know, it is interesting that, like, these people, I mean, listen, oh, Dr. Oz is a funny one because I think we all sort of have a generally negative or skeptical view of the guy, but it only takes, it's only in, in a matter such as this where you go on Google for the five seconds it, it, it takes to realize that 10 of, of the first 15 hits when you search his name are like another low for Dr. Oz. And it's public. This, this piece is published like once a year for the past decade, you know? And he will continue to get booked on these shows and not and because he has relationships with it, because he has a relationship with the president and, and Dr. Drew will continue to get booked too. I mean, I, I, it, it's interesting that there is so much skepticism in their, in their pitches about the journalism, right? Oh, here's the thing that nobody wants you to know. Here's what the other, the real journalists aren't reporting, but like for better or worse, like real journalism would have drummed these people out the door, you know? Right. Well, that's what, so when you talk about the incentives, that's what's so weird, right? Cause these people are going to get booked anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not like Dr. Oz was looking for career opportunities. So it's it's weird to sort of shade into this universe when you could just you're already like surely Dr. Oz has only got something to lose at this point. You know, in terms of like he's already yeah. the TV doctor and is going to have shows and and all this other stuff and so that's a weird part of this. David, just to put a bow on this segment, were you aware that we were getting coronavirus information from a recent contestant on The Masked Singer? <laughs> was dimly aware of this yes dr drew was dressed as an eagle on a recent episode like in the big sports mascot eagle costume with a red bandana i want you to just take a listen to a little of his performance you keep saying you got something for me get it, eagle, get it! something you call love but confess I had really uh, assiduously avoided the mass singer in every form until watching that video. <laughs> you could hear the panel there trying to guess the identity of Dr. Drew, and they came up with Jeff Foxworthy, who you heard, Craig Ferguson, and Montel Williams. Uh, <laughs> and oh my um, gosh that person who was in the eagle suit is on television talking about coronavirus no yeah no by the way that's the you haven't watched the mass singer that's one of the the wonderful conceits of the show that someone will just come out in like you know a cartoon ant costume and sing a song and then jenny mccarthy is like is obligated you know by contract to stand up and be like wait a second is that 
is that former president Barack Obama under there? <laughs> just, just like raises, just raises the bar to ridiculous heights, and somehow no one's upset when it's Doctor Drew. I don't know what the door, the right joke for Doctor Drew would be if someone's like, "Wait, is that is that Jonas Salk that I hear underneath?" <laughs> <laughs> that would truly be a surprise. That'd get me to watch the show. Yeah. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod. Uh, we've spent a considerable part of the pandemic, David, making puns in which the World Health Organization or WHO is switched for the word who. Remember when the WHO said dogs couldn't get coronavirus and the gag was who let the dogs out? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a recent piece about how China had deceived the WHO during the pandemic. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write official response from the who we won't get fooled again. We won't get. (laughs) I like that. David Saturday night live returned to the air this weekend. There's something I didn't watch much like the mass singer because it wasn't funny. Twitter agreed funny responses to Saturday night live coming back. SNL hasn't this country suffered enough. (laughs) <laughs> uh snl is social distancing themselves from the funny and i like this one i didn't think you could make quarantine any worse and suddenly the cold play guy is covering bob dylan <laughs> thanks to the morgan you know for that one and finally david an amazing tweet from new york magazine i haven't read the article yet but how could you improve on this tweet as people practice social distancing and cut off rats food sources rats some experts say rats will resort to cannibalism, rat battles, and infanticide. Oh, my gosh. Uh, a couple of funny responses. <laughs> Who said there aren't any sports? Uh, and I love this one. After reading this, Dana White spent all day building a mini octagon. <laughs> if you think sports could be replaced by homicidal rats, and if you've already pitched such a concept to ESPN executives, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, Dave, before we get to the notebook dump, a quick message from The Ringer. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jamel Hill. And I'm Van Layton. We're proud to introduce our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. We're going to recap, break down, and analyze every episode of the iconic HBO hit series, The Wire, starting from the beginning with season one. First episodes hitting you on April 15th. Now, every podcast episode will include recaps, signature moments, foreshadowing, key character deep dives, little-known facts, and also awards such as We Love This Show But, the Stringer Bell Fuckboy Award, my personal favorite, who won the episode, and more. So subscribe to The Wire Way Down in the Hole on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you in West Baltimore on April 15th. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to talk to you about the idea of Trump's total authority because Monday's press briefing was a startling work of propaganda, even by the standards of coronavirus press briefings. Mm -hmm. Trump was sniping at the media, uh, at various imagined opponents before playing a video that was intended to rebut a Sunday report in the New York Times about how the Trump administration was slow to take the virus seriously. Before we get into this, are you as amused as I am by the media saying, I know we say this all the time, but even this was a new low for Trump? 
Is that the phrase that pays every time Trump supposedly indulges in a new low? I mean, I think I've probably said that too. I, but yes, I mean, the, the the rhythm, the syncopation of that sort of repeated phrase is is pretty incredible. I don't even know. I mean, you could probably draw a, a not a, a somewhat straight line to the you know conservative media's treatment of President Obama during his tenure, right? That like every time he rolled out of bed, it was just like another new low for the presidency. But it's more in this case our the degree to which we insist on being surprised anew each time with a downward trajectory. I, I mean, I guess that's what's significant here. Yeah, and I don't want to make fun of reporters because they're not wrong, right? Like mm. that that briefing yesterday was bonkers. It was it it was on a different level than other bonkers Trump coronavirus briefings. But it's just funny because we're, we're we're constantly one of the challenges with Trump is to help people understand, oh, wow, this is really different and really bad. And when you keep saying it over and over again, you're right. It almost sounds like you're the Fox News guy. Who's like, oh, another another new low for Obama. He filled out an NCAA bracket yesterday. You know, this is a, what, what will the administration resort do next? But with Trump, you do kind of need to say that. Uh, Trump's video yesterday accused the media of downplaying the danger of the virus. All the clips presented uh, were examples from Fox News. It also presented a timeline of events portraying the White House's response to the virus as prompt and effective. Uh, it took an audio clip from a March episode of The Daily with Maggie Haberman out of context. As Haberman uh, said on Twitter, it cherry-picked clips of various governors giving platitudes about the administration's response. Afterward, David Trump was back at the podium, clearly thinking he had owned the libs. So we could give you hundreds of clips like that from governors, including Democratic or Democrat, as I call them, governors, which is actually the correct term. Uh, We could give you hundreds of clips just like that. We have them. Uh, We didn't want this to go on too long, but I just want to say it's, uh, you know, it's very sad when people write false stories like, in that case, I guess it was gotten mostly from the New York Times, which is a highly, I mean, if you had libel laws, uh, they would have been out of business even before they'll end up going out of business. So, uh, Eric Lipton, one of the reporters who wrote the Times piece, David, noted on Twitter that Trump's rebuttal video did not actually contradict any of the facts in the Times report, uh, which was interesting. <laughs> Reporters then started to question the timeline Trump had presented as a victory. Paula Reed from CBS asked why the administration didn't take any action between declaring a partial travel ban on January 31st and then declaring a national emergency six weeks later uh, in March. Here's how that went. I saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds well, of thousands of lives that by time hurting. That you bought. The argument is that you bought yourself some time. You didn't use it to prepare hospitals. You didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right you're so, now, you're so, you're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. Let, let me just listen. I just went over it. I just went over it. Nobody thought we should do it. And when I did it. But what did you do with the time that you bought? You know what we did? What do you do? What do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? You had cases when you, you excuse me, you reported it. Zero cases, zero deaths on January seventeenth. January, February, the entire January. I said in January. Your video has a complete gap on, on January thirty. What did your administration 
do in February with the time that your travel ban thought A lot. A lot. And in fact, we'll give you a list. What we did, in fact, part of it was up there. We did a lot. Look, look. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. And most of you, and not all of you, but the people are wise to you. That's why you have a lower a lower approval rating than you've ever had before, times probably three. And when you ask me that question, let me ask you this. Why didn't Biden, why didn't, why did Biden apologize? Why did he write a letter of apology? No, that's very important. Why did the Democrats think that I acted too quickly? You know why? Because they really thought that I acted too quickly. We have done a great job. Now, I could have, I could have kept it open. And I could have done what some countries are doing. They're getting beat up pretty badly. I could have kept it open. I thought of keeping it open because nobody's ever heard of closing down a country, let alone the United States of America. But if I would have done that, we would have had hundreds of thousands of people that would right now be dead. Woo. Uh, (laughs) On the one hand, uh, that reporter, did we catch her name? Was that Paula Reed? Is maybe one of the most significant heroes of you know the current age that we live in on the other hand i i kind of feel like allowing trump to to even address those accusations is almost i don't know if playing into his hands gives him too much credit but you could tell that he sort of relished in the fight as as much as he was maybe uncomfortable in the moment i mean this is the sort of trump that that the trump's most ardent supporters are like desperate to see and um and I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure that there's anything you could get him to say that would that would actually benefit, you know, I mean, that would that would lead to greater understanding of the situation. But maybe I'm not maybe I'm not being generous enough. Yeah. And I and I think Trump's clear aim yesterday was just he wanted to fight. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was mad at that New York Times story. And by the way, that New York Times story, which is which is a very interesting read. But, you know, it it's not it was not, and it got a lot of play on Twitter and stuff like that. And maybe that's why Trump was so angry, but that story was really a lot of fine grain about, you know, the Trump's administration's conflicted attitude toward China, uh, about Alex Azar, secretary of health and human services, who had talked to Trump about this in January, Trump had sort of ignored it and then reduced his power. According to the times, I mean, this, this, this was not like some gigantic smoking gun thing why it set the trump administration off and trump himself off to that degree i'm kind of i'm kind of amazed it was a very very good story but it was you know not one that i'm sure like a lot of people outside of you know elite media channels would have paid a ton of attention to unless trump drew their attention there which he did the headline of the whole briefing david by the way was that trump said he had ultimate authority quote unquote to override states and reopen the economy, which he, of course, is eager to do. Listen to this. What question, Steve? Go ahead. There's a debate over what authority you have to order the country reopened. Uh, what authority do you well, have? Well, I have the ultimate authority, but we're going to get into that in a minute. We're going to just finish this up. We're going to tell you about other things that we've done right. Uh, but I will say this. Had we said, let's just keep going and let's not do a closing, whether it's 2.2 that they at one point predicted as an outside or 1.6 at a lower number. Uh, you cut it all the way down to six or seven or 800,000, take just a fraction of the number that could have happened. Uh, it literally would have been more than the Civil War. It would have been a disaster. And on and on. Ultimate authority. <laughs> Jonathan Chait wrote a good column about this where he essentially said, 
if you have a president who has at least entertained authoritarian ideas before, it's probably a good idea to pay attention when he just comes out and says it at a press conference. <laughs> yeah. And as much as I said that maybe, I mean, in the same way that I said that that previous kind of confrontation with the reporter might have been a, if not a positive outcome for Trump, something that he was sort of interested in engaging in. <laughs> I think this is a huge misstep for him, and I don't think he did it deliberately. I don't think this was calculated or anything like that, but precisely because of what Jonathan Chait said. I mean, I think that if nothing else, if you were inclined to look at all of these daily press conferences as a just sort of, you know, presentation of folly, your daily, you know, your evening follies or whatever on, on television. If you're just, you know, if it was just sort of point and laugh and, or, or if nothing else, just sort of, you know, roll your eyes at the monotony of it. If you weren't concerned about any of, any of the things that the president was doing during them, then this just puts the spotlight right back on it. Right. I mean, just the, the, this is Trump, you know, living up to, all of his worst impulses, everything that he's been that he's been accused of a million times in the past, and and it's true. Like we have to pay attention to it. David, let's talk about ESPN because uh, we got some news yesterday. It came down from John Arand over at Sports Business Journal that ESPN had asked a hundred of its most highly paid commentators to take voluntary fifteen percent pay cuts over the next three months. I'm uh, quoting from Aran's tweet. ESPN statement said, we're asking about 100 of our commentators to join with our executives and take a temporary salary reduction. These are challenging times, and we're all in this together. Of course, the spoken or unspoken context there is, please take a salary cut, or otherwise we're going to have to lay off less fortunate people at the company or people that don't make as much as some of the superstar commentators. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you. This, to me, had always been, especially when we're talking about sports media, and how the coronavirus pandemic is going to affect them, I guess us. ESPN to me had been one of those Rubicons that I'd sort of been waiting for this to get to. Not out of any glee, of course, but just saying like, it's in a way the ultimate sign that this will affect everybody, right? It's not just your local newspaper, which was already strapped before the pandemic began. It's not just a website like Fangraphs that we've talked about on here before. It's the mothership. It's, you know, it, it is, it is the network and, you know, this is a start. They hope this is where it goes, but it feels like, it feels like a couple of things. One is that that's a big deal when it gets to ESPN. And two, I'm sort of fascinated about how whatever cuts may come after this will sort of change the way ESPN looks when, and if this pandemic is ever behind us. Well, I think in a weird reverse way, that's sort of what I've been thinking about, too. I mean, I just don't know how. I mean, I'm sure there were people who worked at ESPN who were very were, who were very concerned, you know, for the past couple months about their job security. I'm sure there were people there, too, who said, you know, we have a parent company that's one of the richest media companies in the history of the world. And if they decide that we should all stay employed, then we will stay employed. Right. Um, sadly, those people were wrong, even if they were right in principle. Uh I guess to me, it's just a little bit hard to fathom why if the if the financial situation is so dire that money has to be saved in the form of employee compensation, I guess I can't wrap my head around why the salary shouldn't be made up directly from whatever executive was so negligent as to sign all these other paychecks that they couldn't afford to pay. 
I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it be logical that like the idiot that that overextended themselves that couldn't get past one fallow month should be the one who takes in a cut of his or her entire salary? I don't know. Maybe yeah, I mean, I'm crazy. They, they, no, I mean, there but there would certainly been executive pay cuts too. But no, I know, right. I know they're joining. They're joining in it, but it's like, but why are we joining? I mean, it's not. It's not someone. It, why would it be someone's fault that they that said yes to an offer that was given to them? You know, and and why would anyone expect that 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 like a bad I mean that's the whole point of a of a salary you know is that you should be expected to pay it and, and and to hold everyone else's I mean we saw this with SI and you wrote about it you know uh, very beautifully but I mean, the idea that 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 you that everyone else's employment is being held ransom against your willingness to take a pay cut is one of the most just deplorable things I can possibly imagine well yeah and I and I just wonder if you're looking if they're looking down the road and seeing you know that it's not a it's not a fallow month right it's fallow months and months and months and months well yes and uh, it's it's interesting i mean i was uh, you know there's been some speculation in the world of professional wrestling if i can take a little detour uh, wwe is, has decided wwe was was supposed to they they pre-taped a couple of weeks of wrestling they pre-taped wrestlemania and managed to not have any of the results leak out and they put it on the air then the idea was that uh, they were going to get together the following Friday and record several weeks of content and kind of see where it went from there. And then right before they everybody kind of gathered to do the tapings, apparently Vince McMahon decided that they weren't going to pre-tape. They were going to still go live, and they were they've been deemed an essential business in Florida, uh, unsurprisingly. Which is hilarious, by the way. Yeah, and and decided to continue to um, to air live every Monday and Friday and potentially Wednesday, I guess too. Uh, and. Part of it is just sort of defiance. Part of the, you know, I mean, to, it's it's assumed that part of it is Vince McMahon's kind of defiant streak. Part of it is, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, a business as usual sort of attitude or a desire to entertain people as best they can. But there is some speculation that that even though it seems really, really improbable and implausible, there's some speculation that Vince McMahon doesn't want to give NBC Universal or Fox, the two people he's in, you know, he has deals with, any possible inch of room to to renegotiate their contract mm -hmm. uh and 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 that by not having live content every week that there would be some you know but in some sense they would or in some you know minor way they would be in violation of their contract terms you can kind sure. of fill in the rest of the gaps i don't think that's feasible i mean i don't think that's that's realistic at all but that is the same that that is the same anxiety that you were kind of describing in the media world right or in this in the in the journalism world that the deals that we signed literally 3 months ago 6 months ago whatever do not reflect the future and there's this sort of industry wide or you know worldwide feeling that the dark future that we thought we've been staving off you know is is actually now right around the corner yeah and that's terrifying for anybody in our business. I mean, I, I just know, again, just watching ESPN over the last couple of weeks that it just begins to get a little grim, right? They're doing the best they possibly can to say, look, we don't have any of the live sports we count on, right? Or we'd be counting on right now. And so we're going to just do our best to kind of, you know, put up things and reheat things and do what we can. We've gone now from like WrestleMania, classic WrestleManias, <laughs> uh, classic Monday night football games. There's a Brett Favre one on the other night, uh, Vince Young beating USC in the Rose Bowl. But then as you see, it slowly <laughs> sort of goes. Then now we're going to like, you know, the ESPN movies uh, being shown again. 
uh, the Cal Ripken game. I guess that was kind of a big deal. Spelling bee marathon the other day. And I'm like, you know, I know the spelling bee is a big deal, but the <laughs> vintage spelling bees, is there going to be that big of a thing? But the, you just run out of stuff right after a while. Like you just, it is so hard to sustain. And the other piece of this with ESPN that's we're talking about is what's happening at Disney. Ben Smith wrote a column about this the other day. Disney is apparently losing $30 million a day with their theme parks closed down, movie releases that they would be counting on coming out over the next couple of months, not in theaters. Um, they are taking a hit. And there's this whole idea that that Smith gets in his column that Bob Iger, who is apparently back in charge to some degree, is imagining what Disney's going to look like after the coronavirus. Is it going to be slimmed down? Are we going to get rid of some of these, you know, sort of sort of things that we've had, like like upfronts and things like that, that we just can't have anymore? And I think that extends to ESPN too. One because they're they're part of Disney, but also just this: what's what does ESPN? You know, is there a stripped down or slightly stripped down ESPN that emerges after all this is over? Because again, of not only their own you know, struggles to kind of put on a TV network every day, but their parent company struggles to just to make money. I know the Bob Iger on top is sort of like, I mean, and he's done a lot of amazing things, obviously, with that company, but it sort of feels like whatever the opposite of coaching for your job is, when you're like, you already know that, that your job is over, then what are the interests you're kind of, you're looking out for? Maybe it's some, you know, you, you want to go down in history as the only executive or CEO is, you know, who, who, who actually, you know, projected what the future would look like in, a, in an honest way. But, it's got to leave, you know, a lot of the people working underneath him a little bit uneasy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's impossible for you or I to sit here and look into a crystal ball and say, you know, what everything's going to, you know, what the media landscape, what Disney's reality will look like in the future. But, uh, you know, projecting the future for the Walt Disney Corporation, I don't think matters a lot to any laid off, you know, employees who have house payments coming up. No, and and you're you're right. And when you hear that kind of corporate speak, like we're reimagining the company, right? You're not imagining like a new ride at Disneyland. You're reimagining someone's job uh, being gone. Uh, you're reimagining lots of people. And and by the way, it's not going to be probably those richly compensated executives. You know, you are. And you know that's the thing about sports television. I think sometimes with ESPN in particular, we think of it as this big behemoth that you know we want to poke knives into many of which we many a times we should do that but when you begin to sand it down or at least think about doing that these are people's jobs are at stake and these are not again these are not famous people this is not going to be Stephen A Smith right this is going to be producers people behind the scenes things like that and there's this just whole idea of you know, we've been living in an era, even even as downsized as it is with television, where there's so much money put into television production still, even for even for forget the games like Monday Night Football, just chat shows, things like that. They look so good. And is there a reality that after this, it's just not going to look like that anymore? I don't know. You know, I don't I, know. It's certainly on the table. Can you answer me a very basic ESPN programming question? Because, you know, these try. things and I don't understand at all. You know, we talked a lot in previous episodes <laughs> and over the past several years about, you know, Michael and Jamel's Sports Center. I mean, there've been a lot of different uh, about High Noon. There've been a lot of been a lot of times where we've talked about programming at ESPN being sort of gauged again. You you program or you you rate a new show versus how just standard Sports Center would do in the same time slot, right? 
mm-hmm. I know that there's not actual sports to cover. Maybe I'm naive, but as someone who watches ESPN largely, I mean, I watch Sports Center, and I, you know, will find myself watching ESPN or obviously Monday Night Football. You know, when those, I mean, NBA or Monday Night Football when those games are on a lot of the time. But when I'm watching Sports Center, certainly when I'm watching NFL Live or whatever, I don't know that I'm deeply invested in the, the, the need for news of the day. Like, I guess I just, there's enough going on in the world that even if you were just doing vague NFL draft prep, because that's still happening, or talking about what NBA players are doing in their off time, I get I, the, the question boils down to this: like, why is why not just run Sports Center all the time? Like, is it like it's just background music to a lot of people in the world anyway? Like, wh- how how is what they're doing a better? How is I just don't understand how how that's not a fine solution. So that that's an interesting question. I mean, I was like, I explored that in slightly different form last week when I was writing about Paul Feinbaum's radio show, mm-hmm. right? Which is normally about college football, and at this time of year would probably be about the NCAA tournament, also getting ready for the SEC season. And what amazed me that he's done is just make it about the coronavirus, right? Like the whole show is about the coronavirus. People call in. The normal coaches call in, you know, SEC coaches like, hey, what what are, are what are you afraid? Are, you know, how is this affecting your that that kind of thing? And I do think there are so many talented people and they've done it in pockets for sure. But you're right. There is this whole kind of interesting thing is, is it possible to take a sports network and just make it about? Is there a way to just engage with the news of the day, the reality we're in right now and will be in for the foreseeable future? Right. Just make it about that in some mm-hmm. way and sort of leave it to the creative people there to do that. Because at some point to me, I know the like, you know, horse and playing a horse and all that stuff is like a way to get through the day. I admire the gimmicky creative spirit, but at some point you just got to do something else. And again, I don't know if that's just because sports radio is, is, is a kind of, you know, vehicle where that's a lot easier to accommodate in TV. I don't know. I'm sure they're having those conversations right now. Because what do we do for the next couple of months is the question hanging over the whole company. All right, mm-hmm. time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Ooh, all right. Thursday's headline was the mystery of how a tiger caught COVID-19 has experts chasing their tails. Mm. This week's headline is from the Sunday New York Times book review, David. It sat atop a review of a new book about crossword puzzles. Crossword Ooh. puzzles. I like this book. What's the book? Yeah, uh, I will. I will tell you that in a minute. Okay, tell me. All right, because it's actually got a good pun title itself. But I'm going to get you started on this headline. The headline is a pun on a famous quote from Casablanca. From Casablanca, what was the New York Times book review's strain pun headline? Wait, that's all I get. This crossword puzzles and and Casablanca quote. You got um, it. Of you all the joints in all the town, of all the gin joints, of all the. Uh, um, no, 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 different, different quote. That's a good start. But what did they say at the end? Play it again, Sam. Uh, Think of here's looking at you, kid. Uh, it's about crossword puzzles. Here's looking at. Um, here, God, why can't I figure this out? Here's looking at Clue, kid. <laughs> here's no. here's no. Uh, a cro- a uh, down across. Here's looking at. Uh, man, what is it? Why can't I get a this? A crossword puzzle is a giant jumble. Uh, puzzle. Here's looking at uh, you, quiz. Uh, yeah. Why can't I'll I get you this? Down me. Here's looking at you, grid. Oh, god, that's so obvious. <laughs> that's that's fantastic, fantastic work. 
<laughs> Here's looking at you, Grid. He is David Shoebaker, Upbride Curtis, Research by Erica Cervantes, and Chris Almeida, Production Magic by Kaya McMullen. We're back Thursday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. Sanjay Gupta or whatever in the in the same category as the doctors we've discussed, even though he occupies a similar role on CNN. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but, my, my daughter reacting to the celebrity doctor. <laughs>